Hi, I'm Alex Attili. And I'm Sarah Stoffer. And you're listening to Spilling the Tea with CCE. This podcast features fellows at Hofstra University's Center for Civic Engagement as they talk about a wide range of topics from current events to social movements, as well as issues that affect our daily lives. From healthcare to mental health, nothing is off the table. This podcast was created in spring 2020 to continue the conversations we had on campus in a virtual way. And we're so happy to have you here spilling the tea with us. Even though Hofstra's CCE is back to running in-person programming, we had such a positive experience with this podcast that it is now a permanent part of CCE operations. Now, let's spill the tea. Welcome back to Spilling the Tea with CCE. My name is Caitlin. I'm a pre-health and disability studies major. I have an autoimmune disorder called celiac disease, and I plan on going into behavioral and developmental pediatrics in the future, hopefully, and working with disabled children in some capacity. I'm Sanjita. I'm a sociology major with minors in disability studies, and I'm pre-law, and I plan to be a disability lawyer in the future, and I myself have many disabilities, all of of which are invisible in some way. I have some breathing conditions and then I have mental health stuff and learning stuff. So a little bit of everything, but they're all things that you can't see when you look at me. So today, Caitlin and I are going to be talking about the experience of being disabled on Hofstra's campus and specifically what it's like to have invisible disabilities while navigating those experiences. I guess to start off this conversation, I think it would be important, especially for any listeners who haven't really thought about disability before or haven't really thought about what exactly that conversation looks like, would be to just start off by giving some definitions for things that are going to come up in our conversation a lot. And so the first thing that I think is most important to think about is what a disability actually is. And so many people have this misconception that disability is just people in a wheelchair or people with crutches or kind of these, you know, symbols that we have in society for what disability looks like. But really the way that I like to define it is it's anything or any reason that makes your body or mind work differently than others in a way that an ableist society makes it difficult to exist or to live or to do whatever you need to do. Any of those reasons are disabilities. And so whether or not you choose to identify as being disabled is an individual's choice, but it's also not something that's dependent on a doctor sanctioning it or giving you like a documented diagnosis to prove it. Like having a disability or being disabled isn't necessarily contingent on that. And so the ADA, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act, officially defines disability as being substantially limited in a major life function, kind of vague. But basically what that means is that as long as you have more than a minor inconvenience doing something and something could be like walking, breathing, eating, sleeping, concentrating, seeing, hearing, even things like your bodily functions, all of that stuff counts as being a disability. When I say a minor inconvenience, I'm saying things they specifically cite, like a mild pollen allergy is not counting as a disability, but the ADA is intentionally vague in not making a list of what is a disability and what's not a disability, which is intentional so that people are able to access services under the ADA as much as they'd like to, and for that to be more widespread. And so in saying that, basically what I'm trying to get at is that a lot of the time we think disability is a very limited, small number of things, but in reality, a lot of the things that we call mental health conditions, medical conditions, pre-existing conditions, comorbidities, 
all of those things are disabilities. Whether or not you identify as being disabled or not is a personal choice, but they're covered under the ADA as disabilities. And they're things that you can receive reasonable accommodations for in any business or any institution or organization that serves the public. They're all required to uphold the ADA and provide reasonable accommodations. And you don't have to give proof to receive those accommodations officially, according to the ADA. So that was a lot of words and a lot of things that I just said there. But I'm going to say one more thing, and then we'll get into our actual discussions. But the last thing I really wanted to spend some time talking about was ableism. And I think like these other terms that I've been talking about, ableism gets this like really oversimplified definition a lot of the time. People just think it's discrimination against people with disabilities. It's more than that. Um, and the definition that I really like to use is the one that T.L. Lewis has created. And the definition is that ableism is a system of assigning value to people's bodies and minds based on societally constructed ideas of normalcy, productivity, desirability, intelligence, excellence, and fitness. And that those ideas are deeply rooted in eugenics, anti-Blackness, misogyny, colonialism, imperialism, and capitalism. And basically, ableism leads people and society to determine other people's value based on their culture, age, language, appearance, religion, birth or living place, quote unquote, health or wellness, and their ability to satisfactorily produce and reproduce, excel and behave. And most importantly, in my opinion, you don't actually have to be disabled to experience ableism. So that was a lot of words, and we'll put a link to that in the description so you can read it if that went over your head. But basically, ableism is at the root of all systems of oppression, and all systems of oppression depend on ableism, reinforce ableism, they're all tied together. Basically what ableism is, is that it puts a person's value contingent on whether or not they're able to conform to what society wants of them. So now I've talked a lot about a lot of things and we're going to actually start our conversation and it's not just going to be me talking, but I think I'm going to turn it over to Caitlin to see if she wants to kind of start our conversation on a specific point or a specific way that this relates to Hofstra. I'm not sure how many students or how many people outside of this campus know, but Hofstra does have a really large part in disability justice history. A lot of really famous disability activists either attended the school in some capacity, have spoken here. It was a really big place and a big center of that movement. So it has a really deep history of claiming that there's equal accessibility and all of these things on campus. But as time goes on, we've seen that this isn't always the case, especially now. Obviously, things have changed a lot since at least 20 years ago when prominent movements of the disability justice movement were still happening. I think the easiest way for people to see this on our campus is a lot of the physical barriers. One of the things I've noticed the most frequently is that the automatic sliding doors, those are frequently broken. And obviously that doesn't restrict someone who isn't physically disabled, but it's something that's very noticeable on campus. And I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about that as one of the most prominent things they see for a lack of accessibility on our campus. But I think that is a great way to just show that that in and of itself is the baseline for things that should be accessible and the doors don't even work. And I'm also thinking about beyond the doors, like thinking about the student center and specifically the parts of the student center where you get food in the back and how just the way that that's set up architecturally, you get into the door. And as soon as you're there, there's tons of people everywhere. There's not a lot of room to kind of get through all the different food places the actual cards that say what type of food is being served, you know, what the name is, how much it is, they're really small and the font size is really, really small as well. And so when you factor in the fact that you have lots of people in there and it's really small, 
if you have any sort of vision impairment, even if you just have glasses and maybe you don't have a very severe vision impairment, it can be really difficult to actually see and read what it is that is being served. Also, the actual counters where you get your food from are really high up too. So anyone in a wheelchair, honestly, anyone who's short can struggle trying to get access to food. And that's just in the student center, which is probably the most common place I'd argue on campus that people get food. It's not exhaustive, but those are some of the things that I think we also notice as being like physical barriers to getting access to things that you need. You can't just like not get food or avoid the student center your entire time at Hofstra. Just like you can't avoid going to class if you need to get in and the doors don't open. I've definitely noticed a big change in how the student center has been formatted since COVID happened. I think it was a lot more accessible before the pandemic hit and we didn't have the same restrictions like with the counters and things like that. Everything was more open on the food so they could hand it underneath the glass panes that they have that they rest sign on. With them lifting all the other restrictions that they've lifted, they haven't brought back that aspect and it obviously does impair a lot of people. But I think another big, big issue on this campus is although the academic side of campus is flat, getting over to the academic side of campus is not flat. And that can be really hard for manual wheelchair users who have to push themselves all the way up the Unispan or have to make a really long trip to either the med span or the Nettie span, either at the near the med school or near the Netherlands, which can be really inconvenient, even for people without a wheelchair or something like that. Like that can be really hard, especially if you have like breathing problems or it can be hard for anyone. Honestly, it doesn't have to be someone with a type of disability that would have trouble walking up a steep hill multiple times a day. Like I, I don't like it. I prefer the flat Unispans and I don't have any type of disability that would impair my ability to do that. But they're just not the most accessible. I know obviously it's a better option than crossing the turnpike or having stairs, but I personally think it could have been done in a better way than the steep hills that they have. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. And as someone who is huffing and puffing my way up because I have asthma, it's really challenging. And especially like having to go across, like you said, multiple times a day, back and forth, it can be really challenging and it can be taxing. I can see why having stairs or just having elevators could be really challenging with the huge numbers of people that cross it at certain times of the day. I still feel like the steepness of the incline probably could have been constructed better. Or at the very least, the alternative unispans, the distance that they are from other classes and things that you actually would be near. Those are things that I feel like could have been done better that can make it really challenging for disabled students. And like we've said, also people who may not have disabilities that impair their ability to go across the Unispan. It makes it difficult unnecessarily, I think is the point we're trying to make. So totally agree with that. I think the last thing I want to touch on for the physical barriers is the lack of accessibility housing that's on this campus. In the towers, it's usually restricted to the first and a little bit of the second floor. I know Stuyvesant is usually the building that they deem the most accessible. And a lot of people who have like larger physical disabilities live in that building. But I don't think we should be limiting it to just one floor because regardless, larger bathrooms would help everyone. I don't think it should just be like, oh, this person's in a wheelchair. So they're the only one that needs a larger bathroom. That isn't fair or warranted or justified in any way because some people don't have a physical disability but would warrant the use of these bathrooms and things like that or just like better floor setups. I totally agree with you and I think it really speaks to the way that on campus we handle if somebody is disabled and has particular needs that they need in order to access things. The way that we handle that is we make it an individual problem Mm -hmm. Um, that that individual has to prove that they need and then they're the only one who's allowed to get access to it and even then 
they're allowed to, but whether or not that's actually enforced or consistently available to them is a different story. But because we've individualized it so much, there's so many people who are now not able to access that same thing, which could help them. And I have such a big issue with this and I could talk about this forever. Caitlin knows. But like, I really feel strongly that gatekeeping a lot of services and access is really not helping anybody. It's unnecessarily inconvenient. And there's also to consider the fact that like, there's so many barriers to actually getting a diagnosis that would hypothetically qualify you for services. It's extremely expensive. It can cost thousands of dollars to actually get one of those diagnoses. A lot of people of color, trans people, LGBTQ people, anyone really who's marginalized has a lot of issues a lot of the time with medical practitioners having bias against them. And so that interferes with their ability to actually get an accurate diagnosis or a diagnosis that reflects their actual needs. There's also a lot of issues with like getting to the doctor at the frequency at which you might have to go to get a diagnosis. Like you might have to go multiple times, do lots of different types of tests and all those things add up just in terms of like a financial toll, but also just like a physical and emotional toll. And so when you take into account all these different things, and the fact that there's so many barriers to getting the diagnosis, it really doesn't feel fair that we're gatekeeping services based off whether or not someone has a diagnosis, when really the ADA does not require that we do that. That's something we've created because we think that it's better to make sure that people aren't quote unquote faking disability and taking advantage of something. That's more important to us than making sure that people who actually need it get access when they need it. Yes, a lot of other institutions operate similarly, But that doesn't mean we have to do that too. And that doesn't stop us from choosing to do something that's more accessible to everyone. Something that really takes into account the fact that not everyone has access to diagnoses and not everyone has access to getting services in the way that we are forcing them to do it in this very like narrow, specific process. We could be giving access to a lot of people by making it less complicated and less gatekeepy. Yeah, I think one of the things that this university has done, they've definitely stigmatized the idea of having a disability, especially having an invisible one. I don't think they've factored in like how much more difficult it is to get a diagnosis for an invisible disability because there's so many different things that factor into that. And if you have multiple disabilities, like you might need different accommodations for everyone, or you might need more for one than the other. Like there's a whole list of things. And I think they've really stigmatized the idea of like going through the proper channels to get a diagnosis and be treated for your medication, like whatever medication you may need, like all of these things, they've made it seem like a negative thing to have a disability, but it's not a negative thing. Like it never should be like that. If you need accessibility, like you need accessibility. There's no bad thing about that it's just a way of life like everyone has a different way of doing things just it's whether or not the school can provide them they've done a really bad job of doing that in the recent time and I want to add to that like this is not me saying you know this is SAS's fault because I think they are really trying their best there I think this is something that goes beyond them and it's above their pay grade for lack of better terminology I think this is a bigger issue with our institution as a whole and honestly with the institution of higher education as a whole I think that there are better ways that we could handle accommodation we can handle accessibility that doesn't need to be the way that it is now. And I absolutely agree with you with the idea that having a disability has been stigmatized and not even just stigmatized, but like, it feels like it's a chore to go through all the steps that you need to actually get services so much so that it turns off people from actually doing it. I'm just thinking back to like when I finally did end up getting services from SAS and like, I probably could have applied for services like a year prior to when I actually did, but just looking at the amount of paperwork, the amount of things that I have to get from like 
a doctor, from a specialist, from an, another specialist, do all the diagnostic testing. I was like, this is too much. And for someone who literally has disabilities with like focusing and like remembering and staying on top of things and is anxious, like the actual process itself is asking me to use the very skills that I am impaired with. Like those are the skills that I have a hard time with. So the fact that we are putting up all these roadblocks for honestly no reason, it just feels especially frustrating. I also wanted to talk a little about something which I think Caitlin, you had kind of talked about earlier in a conversation we'd had before this, but just the amount of euphemisms that the administration uses to talk about disability. And I think we've come up with so many examples of this. I think one of my favorites is the quote, person first priority parking spots. This is in reference to a movement that started in the 70s and 80s that was led by parents as well as disabled activists following institutionalization. And it was fighting back against this idea that it was justified to institutionalize people because disabled people weren't actually people and they were treated inhumanely. And so that's what made it okay to treat disabled people the way that they were treated. So in light of that, there was a big push to use the language people with disabilities as opposed to disabled person or the disabled, you know, centering the fact that they are a person before the disability. And there's been a lot of pushback to that in more recent years with the idea that disability does define a lot of my experience. And why should I have to assert the fact that I'm a person for you to believe that I'm a person? Me saying that I'm a disabled person shouldn't make you question whether or not I'm truly a person, whether or not I truly deserve respect. So I think the fight to move away from that raising and move away from that ideology has been very focused on the idea that it's not the fact that we have to emphasize that people are still people. It's more so we have to destigmatize that disability is a bad thing, that it's not that I'm a person with a disability. So don't think about my disability, but just think about me. I'm a person. It's like, no, like think about me and the fact I have a disability and respect me, even though I have a disability, respect me because I have a disability and respect me just in general. Like it doesn't have to be something that's separate from disability. Anyway, that was a tangent, but this is all to say that the person first priority parking was a misinformed and not great attempt at, I guess, adopting that. They didn't understand what that meant. They just wrote person first and that's all that's on there. But I think it's an example and I'm sure Caitlin will have other examples of how our administration tries to just shy away from saying disability when disability is what we're talking about. And it's not a bad word or a shameful word and something that disabled people feel like they can't say or that no one should talk about. I definitely have a few favorites that have made me laugh in the way they reference disability on this campus. A few of the ones I've heard are ably challenged or um, differently abled, which differently able kind of like irks me beyond belief because everybody is differently abled. If you really think about it, like nobody does everything the same way. Everyone has their own mindset, their own actions, their own ways of doing things, their own ways of thinking. Like you're just describing the human race. Like if we were all the same thing, then I don't think the world would be the way that it is. Also describing something as like ably challenged, like first of all, that's grammatically incorrect. And that really bothers me. Second of all, you're making it a challenge. They are not challenged. You are creating a challenge for people who are disabled. And that really bugs me because it's so easy to just give people accessibility. I understand it can be like costly and things like that, but if we just had the accessibility in place altogether, it wouldn't be costly. Like you would just have it. And those aren't hard things like getting off the Unistan. They just put ramps there. I know 
people who aren't disabled use those. It's not a hard thing to institute. It's just something we should be doing in the first place. And I think a lot of the idea around like using these terms that aren't disabled comes from the idea of stigmatizing things too. Because I know in talks with like administration, when I've heard them use these terms, they don't want to use the word disability when referencing SAS. We've used that term a lot for anyone who doesn't know that student access services. But in referencing SAS in relation to disability, they think it stigmatizes it, makes it something negative. Using the word disability with it would make people shy away from getting things. But having a disability isn't a bad thing and needing accessibility isn't a bad thing. You're equating it with something really negative. And I think that's really harmful, especially to people who have like invisible disabilities. And they're like, oh, well, you're just differently able. No, like you have a disability. That's not like there's no ifs, ands or buts about it. If you identify as disabled or if you don't, you need accessibility. That's not a bad thing. And they make it out to seem like this really stigmatized thing when in reality, like you just need to do things different than what the norm way of doing it is. Absolutely to like add the fact that like as someone who thinks about disability especially in the legal context the reason that SAS and other institutions are able to offer accommodations to people are able to offer accessibility to people is because the ADA the Americans with Disabilities Act made it possible and all institutions are legally obligated by federal law to provide accommodations to people with disabilities but you have to understand that like in order to do that you don't need to prove it in the sense that you know you have to give your documentation but if you don't have a disability then the Americans with Disabilities Act does not apply to you so if you insist even though you do have a disability that no, I'm not disabled, I'm I'm differently abled, or I have special needs, which I hate that term too, that's not going to give you services. An institution has no obligation to you to give you accommodations because you have quote unquote special needs, but you need to have a disability in order to have that federal law be in effect and to apply to you and to give you the services that you need. So rather than trying to sidestep the issue that the word disability is stigmatized. In my opinion, I think that the administration, I think Hofstra, I think SAS, I think it would be a much better use of our energy and time to work on destigmatizing disability, educating people on what disability is and the fact that things like asthma, wearing glasses, things that we have just, we don't even consider to be disabilities still count under the ADA as disabilities and entitle you to services. I think we should be jumping into that fight and into that effort instead of saying that, oh, you know, we don't want to turn anyone away. Let's just pretend that disability isn't really like a real thing. We'll just be very hush hush about it. And it's like, that's not going to help people, especially once you leave Hofstra and you're in the world, you may need services for your job. It's all coming under the ADA, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act, not the Americans with special needs or differently abled or ably challenged American. It's not, no, it's the Americans with Disabilities Act. So you can't use it unless you have a disability. What I'm trying to say is that people have disabilities, but they don't want to name them as such. And that's the problem. I feel like the bigger issue here is that we're not making more of an effort to destigmatize it instead of just like, ignoring that issue and trying to like deal with it in a way that doesn't actually deal with the problem. I think another big problem is like, I think there would be more push towards destigmatizing the word if so many disabled people or people who don't necessarily identify as disabled but have disabilities, if they didn't feel like such a burden when they asked for things, because we put such a stigma around it that asking for things seems like a really big deal and you need these things. It's a fact of your life. Like you need accessibility. As someone who doesn't necessarily need the school to accommodate me because I have other options and ways of taking care of myself. You know, I can cook for myself. Mine isn't super dependent on SAS providing me services. I've noticed like so many disabled people who hesitate to get the things they need from SAS and ask the school for proper accessibility just because 
they don't want to feel like a burden. And I know I've experienced this because sometimes there's not always gluten-free options everywhere. And that's hard. I always have food in my room. So I know I'm okay. I've prepared for this and I've done all my research. So I know what I'm doing. That's not to say someone who has a more prevalent disability in their life won't feel the same way and feel like a burden when they ask for things. And I think that's like a really toxic culture that we've created around disability and like asking for what you need. And even people who aren't disabled, like if they need something, like it's still burdensome to ask for help. I just think that's really toxic and something we should be working towards getting rid of. I totally agree with that. So you feel like you're a burden, especially I think in the context of like invisible disability, but I think it can also apply with if you have a visible disability too. But like when you walk into a room or you're in a situation for me specifically like I'm high risk for COVID so like when I walk into a room no one's wearing a mask and no one has even thought to consider that maybe we should offer a zoom option or maybe we should do this outside or maybe we should ask people to wear a mask anyway it's just this idea that like you're forgotten like you're not even considered when people are making decisions about a particular event or about a particular meeting or a class or anything. You're a burden for asking. People don't even care enough to think about what you might need when they're making the original plans. And I think it can take a toll on, on you because not only do you feel like they don't even care about me enough to think about what I might need in this situation, but I have to now go out of my way to ask you something and I have to go out of my way to like make myself vulnerable, kind of be at your mercy whether or not you want to accommodate me or not. Doing that over and over and over multiple times a day constantly takes a huge toll on you. And I think, Caitlin, you mentioned like, you know, for your specific case, like you have a bunch of things in your dorm and you buy food, but it's like, you shouldn't have to do that. Hofstra should be providing you gluten-free options all the time that are nutritious, that are actually, you know, a balanced meal. And I say this with Caitlin, but I mean this with every single situation. And I totally understand and I recognize that, yes, there are lots of types of disabilities. There are lots of types of needs that people have, and you can't get it perfect all the time. I get that. And I'm not expecting that. But I guess where I get stuck is like, I feel like Hofstra has this like rhetoric of like, we are so great with disability and we're done. Like we fixed the disability problem in the 80s and we're a great accessible campus and we don't need to do anything else about it. And it's like, it's not over. Like, it's not done. It's never going to end. We have to keep working towards making things more accessible. And I think the bigger push, and we'll talk about this, I think, in a bit, is with universal design and making sure that when we actually create spaces and we actually think about things, we make them with disabled people's potential needs in mind first, so there's less of a burden on them to have to ask for it first. That's a big thing that I feel like is really frustrating being on this campus. It's like having to constantly, like, overcompensate for the fact that the university doesn't consider me and a lot of things that they do. And it takes a toll. And I think if you have mental health stuff already, it's not a great combination to have to do. And then also go to class and also do all these other things on top of it. Yeah. I mean, I know you mentioned universal design and I want to speak quickly a little bit about that. Notice a lot of the dining options on campus, even for people without disabilities, for people who eat kosher or don't eat certain meats, like even asking for that is burdensome. Like this isn't just something that affects disabled people. And I think adding such a stigma to it, even for people who aren't disabled, makes it a lot harder to live on this campus. I absolutely agree with you. And I think that's why, like, when we talk a lot about these types of solutions, it's the concept that, like, something that helps fix an access issue for someone who's disabled will help fix access issues for lots of types of people. I mean, I think ramps are the example that gets brought up a lot, right? Like a ramp helps a wheelchair user, but it also helps people in strollers. It helps people pushing carts. It helps people doing deliveries. It helps people riding bikes. Like there's so many different people who benefit from that one thing. And I think that 
ideology applies in so many different ways. I mean, even just think about our building, the fact that we have elevators in the towers, like that's something that is an accessibility thing, but everybody benefits from that. I live on the third floor and I use the elevator, but I can walk up the stairs. Like it's not something that impedes on my life, but sometimes I just don't want to. Like elevators are nice. It's something that benefits everyone. Exactly. And so I think like implementing solutions to problems that really take in the part of universal design is one step in the process of making things more accessible. I won't say that it's the solution or the only solution or the thing that's going to fix it, but it's an important step. The last thing I want to touch on before we really get into universal design is the idea that the university, they kind of gatekeep services. When I got diagnosed with celiac disease, I found it really hard to find options on campus. I was on a lot of other restrictive diets, so I was a lot more limited than people who just have celiac disease, but that's the reason like I kind of food in my room now because it feels like I have like this insecurity that the school isn't going to be able to provide for me because there has been such a lack of publicity about these options. I've spoken with a dietitian and every place on campus has gluten-free options, but I never would have known that because it's not something that's well advertised. Like there's options in Bits, there's options at Brooklyn Slice, obviously there's options in the student center, but there's options everywhere. And I never would have known all these things if I hadn't sought out that answer myself. And I've seen this a lot with um, the mental health services because I'm not sure if the number has been changed since my freshman year when I was told about this, but every student get like, I think 10 sessions with a graduate student in psychology and that's free to all students. And that's not something that's well advertised. And I think that's a really big problem on campus and adds to the whole burdensome feeling that a lot of people feel because it's something they don't publish. And if they just publish these things, a lot of problems would be solved. And I think it's also like, not only is it not being publicized, but I feel like we have a lot of things on campus. We're like halfway there. And like, if we just fully committed to what we were doing, it would help fix a lot of accessibility things for a lot of people. One thing I think a lot about is Boost. And like the fact that we have this app that helps a lot of people who might have vision impairments, who might need things read aloud to them to process, who can on their phone use that and it makes it a lot easier for them to figure out how to order, what they want, what they want to get, when they have to go, how long they have to wait. All these issues that could come up potentially with physical accessibility in a space, we have that on the Boost app, but you can only use the Boost app at particular places. A lot of the times things are labeled as out of stock when they're not out of stock. And a lot of the times you can't actually order at particular times of day. We have this infrastructure, we've created it. We can use it to make things more accessible, but we're deciding not to do that because why? Because it's inconvenient, because it's expensive. I don't know. It seems silly. And I think about the same thing with the fact that a lot of our classrooms now are equipped with lecture capture technology and all these things that we put in place for COVID. COVID is not over. And yet we don't feel the need to like offer services to people who may want to attend class online. Even if it's a once in a while thing, we have the technology, we put it in, we put a lot of money and invested in it. So why are we just not using it anymore? Like, it just seems kind of ridiculous to me that like we would put all this money into making all these things and then kind of like halfway utilize them and then just like not utilize them to the degree that it would be helpful to other people. When a lot of people are advocating for that and asking for it, we being the the administration kind of like throws their hands up in the air and says, I'm sorry, we can't do anything about it. But it's like, no, (laughs) you actually can. And you're like, halfway there. If you just keep going, it might fix some, a lot of issues. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I have some issues with the boost thing, kind of how you mentioned. They actually just implemented an allergy alert, which I think is really helpful because like I said, it can be really burdensome to tell people and be in this vulnerable state of exposing yourself in how you identify to someone you don't know and someone you're going to talk to for maximum five minutes. 
And that can be a really hard thing to do, especially when, you, when you're just starting to identify as disabled and when you're just coming to terms with how your life is going to be from now on. But they only have it at one station when that's something they could easily implement at every place you can order on Boost. It's frustrating because, you know, allergies are a really common thing and they only have it at the grill station at Bits. That's not the only place people have allergies, you know what I mean? So I, I completely agree. Like they're not going to the full extent where they could. Like we have all of these things. Why can't we just implement them? And I think especially because it would be an easy thing to implement. Like it wouldn't require much more effort, Mm -hmm. more so than they've already kind of put in for some places. It would just be doing the same process again. I think just to kind of close us out here, I kind of just want to talk a little bit more about universal design, which we've kind of alluded to before. Universal design is this idea that if you plan for the needs of disabled people in your original plan for something, then a lot of different people benefit from it, even if they weren't intended to be the like recipients of that access. So I talked about ramps before, but it really applies to a lot of different things. And, you know, a lot of times, I think people who teach oftentimes are given some tools about UDL, which is universal design for learning. And so there's a lot of different things that sometimes teachers get told about how to like make their lessons and their classroom assignments and things accessible to the point that like different types of learners can all benefit from it and access it. But that ideology and that framework applies to so many different things and is a really easy way to think about when we create new things. Like how we can make things accessible, I think that's a really great framework to think about it because it helps kind of preemptively address a lot of the issues that exist currently on campus. Because if you were thinking about the fact that there might be people with allergies, people who have mental health issues, people who are you know, anxious about being in a space that's really loud and overstimulating and there's a million people and they have to now shout at somebody across the counter that they have an allergy or they have a dietary restriction, like that's a really overwhelming situation to be put in, especially when it happens multiple times a day. But if we had thought, hmm, maybe someone will have that experience, then we could have maybe put in like what you said they have at FITS, like that could have been something that was at every station or something that we had thought about for a lot of different contexts. And I think a lot of making universal design effective is having a lot of disabled people at the table when you make decisions and not just one person who's tokenized or one person with one type of disability, but having people with various different types of experiences who can have intersecting experiences and not just disability, but who are people of color, who are queer, who are of different sizes. Like, I think it's important to have a variety of people's experiences represented when you make those decisions. And I think that helps to explain why a lot of what we have now doesn't work. I think a good way to put this, I heard someone say this a long time ago, and I wish I could remember who so I could give them credit because I think it's a really impactful statement, is that this isn't like a white man's world, but a white man is always sitting at the table. That's not how the world looks. You know, you walk outside, you see people of different races, different disabilities, things like that. And that's what the world looks like. You know, not everyone is a white man, I guess is the easiest way to put it. And I think that was like a really impactful thing. And it definitely changed the way I see universal design and how much I've come to admire that idea and as something we should be implementing because it helps everyone. Some of the most basic things that people don't even think about come from the ideas of universal design. Like, curb cuts is a huge one like and the way you explain ramps it helps people of every type like disabled people people with carriages things like that or like automatic doors in most chain retail stores grocery stores things like that like I know when I walk in with a carriage it's a lot easier to just walk towards the door and it opens 
but we never have things like that if people hadn't advocated for universal design and brought about this idea. Absolutely. And I think it really speaks to the way that ableism intersects with so many different other oppression systems. I also just want to make a note that it's not just representation, right? Like you can have people at the table who represent different identities who don't have the political education or don't understand the ways that they might be reinforcing harms in our society. But it's really, I think, about having people at the table who represent lots of different experiences who are ready and willing to disrupt the way that things have been. I think that's really crucial to making sure that you're actually making change because being anti-ableist doesn't mean that you have people from all different races and all different genders and all different like identity groups sitting at the table and just kind of doing a, more of the same. Like that doesn't actually fix the problem. You need to have people who are willing to disrupt the way that things have been and the norms that have existed for so long. Because you're right, like the idea that it is a white man's world, it's built for white men. Like our entire society is built for people who are able to navigate it without disrupting it. So you need to have people at the table who maybe can't do that or understand what it's like to not be able to do that so that you can begin to change the way that things work to fit people who are not able to fit into it. It's not just about we keep everything the same and then we'll just make a couple little changes and everything's fine. Like we need to fundamentally change the way that we understand disability when we understand institutions, we understand the world in order to make a lot of the changes really be effective in the ways that we need them to be. One thing I want to mention, I know this is a really common thing for people who study disability studies to learn, but there's this idea of disability as a social model and it's that society dictates what a disability is. And I think that's a really good way to think about things because if everyone needed a wheelchair, we would have ramps everywhere. It's how your society creates the challenges for you. And that's what disability is. And it would be so easy to overcome something like this if we just considered different disabilities, different races, different genders, all of these things. If we just put those into consideration when we built these institutions, the world would be so much easier to exist in. I think that's a great place to stop. And we just wanted to thank you for listening to us talk about this. Caitlin and I have these conversations all the time. So we figured why not record one? If you enjoyed this, you can check out other podcasts that are on Spilling the Tea with CCE. And we're also going to be putting a couple of links in the description, the definition of ableism being one of them, and maybe some other things, depending on how we feel after this ends. But definitely check those out. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in continuing the conversation and learning more about Hofstra's Center for Civic Engagement, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Hofstra CCE, or visit our website at hofstra.edu slash CCE. The beautiful music you've heard in this episode was written and composed by Ethan Tauber. This song even features the chords C, C, and E. We hope you join us again to discuss combating more of our world's most pressing challenges. And thank you for helping us spill the tea.